1: Hey, welcome back from the Thanksgiving holiday. And whether you celebrated with a super spreader event of your own or kept it real, kept it isolated, maybe a can of cold lasagna. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sure there's a, there's a happy medium in between those two extremes. But uh, I was very encouraged by the number of people I saw posting on social media how they still managed to get together with family. Look, there were this is the cool thing. There were various... Uh, levels of, you know, protection and prevention at play. There were some families I saw who were all masked up. One family put on the whole full biohazard suits. I'm assuming that was tongue-in-cheek. If not, well, okay, you know, to each his own. But I saw an awful lot of families who just said, look, we have already been kept away from the people we love for the better part of a year. Our businesses have been shut down. Our livelihoods have been put on hold, if not eliminated, depending upon where they work. And they weighed the costs of, okay, so I have this much time and I've given up almost a year of my life that I can't get back. And it's true. You know, money comes and goes, jobs come and go, things come and go, but time is the irreplaceable commodity. And so there were people who I think, uh, you know, made that decision and said, we understand there's risk. We're going to have to take some risk, but we're going to be with family. And, uh, I mean, some took it to, you know, some, some uh, little stronger, uh, a little stronger response. The, the photo of the whole family, <laughs> excuse me, grandma and grandpa, everybody around the table, all flipping the bird for the camera. I assume that was for, you know, whatever governor and told them don't you dare get together and and don't you dare talk for more than 30 minutes or 2 hours or whatever anyway i'm glad to see people exercising their prerogative i haven't heard any horror stories of enforcement but there may have been some and and you know the the finger wagging has begun As of this morning, it's Monday, the 30th of November. I I am already starting to see, you know, Dr. Fauci, chief among them. Well, you know, this uh, created a terrible risk for people everywhere. And yeah, because those Black Friday crowds, and I don't know if you noticed, but the stores were pretty crowded. uh, They they had no risk whatsoever. Please. The hardest thing, I think, is trying to keep it all in perspective, trying to, to maintain some context of what's going on around us uh the hosts of the words and numbers podcast Anthony Davies and James R Harrigan had a policy had a uh, piece rather published on the American Institute for Economic Research website over the weekend the title blinded by a blizzard of data and this is good stuff i think you'll like what they have to say and they start by pointing out something that hopefully uh, you have realized this year there are lies damned lies and statistics. And while this warning is never terribly far from the political surface, they say it should be axiomatic whenever anyone starts talking about COVID data. It's been years since a common pool of data has been so thoroughly mishandled by all sides. And they say this is sure to continue at least until a vaccine has been developed and delivered. Now, one of the warnings they offer is that the surest sign that someone's playing fast and loose with statistics in order to push a particular point of view is the absence of context. And regardless of one's position on the need for COVID lockdowns, one thing is clear. Since the outset, the media have quoted COVID statistics with a consistent absence of context. And the result has been to turn people who believe COVID is a significant danger into quivering cowards and to cause people who believe COVID isn't all that dangerous to dismiss the warnings entirely. Now, they point out all the way back in March when we were just realizing what we were up against, the media defaulted to the case fatality rate. That's the number of deaths out of of confirmed cases. The World Health Organization estimated this would be over 3%. Some outlets were reporting case fatality rates above 10%. By comparison, the case fatality rate for the common flu is a mere fraction of a percent. Now, on its face, that high case fatality rate leaves the uninformed reader thinking, well, the odds of dying from COVID are astronomical compared to the common flu. But James Harrigan and Anthony Davies point out, back in March, very few people were being tested. To get tested for COVID, one generally had to be sick enough to be hospitalized. Those for whom symptoms were light or even non-existent didn't get tested. And the result is that re- the reported COVID fatality rate was biased upward. Early estimates had COVID more than 100 times deadlier than the flu. But at this point, the whole exercise was like asking what fraction of the female population is in labor by surveying women in a maternity ward. That statistics, uh, the statistics were frightening, but without necessary context, they were also meaningless. Now, by early April, they say the media was feeding people daily reports on mounting COVID deaths. Gaudy numbers with lots of zeros framed every screen, screen rather. And they drew the same significant attention that massive death tolls always bring. But the missing context here, the number of people who died on a typical day before COVID. At the April peak, more than 2,400 Americans were dying daily from COVID. But before COVID, COVID. 7,800 Americans died daily. And that's comparing the peak daily COVID deaths to average daily deaths in 2019. The average daily U.S. COVID deaths since the outbreak occurred is around 870, or 10% of the number of deaths we would expect in the normal course of events. The number's concerning, but bodies were not piling up in the streets as many breathlessly predicted. The lack of context led people to believe that thousands of deaths per day was something out of the ordinary. More people were dying, to be sure, but to understand what that meant would have required people to understand how many Americans die each day in the normal course of events. And the American people generally have little idea, and the media doesn't help matters. It's fantastic, after all, the fantastic, rather, that drives media behavior. So by mid-April, pictures of exponential growth were everywhere, But exponential growth is typical. Every disease outbreak shows exponential growth at the outset. And every disease outbreak shows a peak and decline following that exponential growth. Without context, one could take the growth to mean that we'd all be infected and likely dead in short order. Now, by May, COVID deaths were falling, apparently depriving the media of a story. But increased testing meant that more cases were being discovered, so the media shifted from breathlessly reporting daily deaths to breathlessly reporting daily infections. For their purposes, one was as good as the other. But as was the case in March and April, context also mattered in May. There was no discussion on what case meant. A case could be anything from someone on a ventilator to someone showing no symptoms at all. Early data indicated that around 80% of COVID cases didn't require hospitalization. The lack of context left the impression that each additional case was one more person on death's door. And making matters worse, the increase in testing introduced a confound. By definition, the more people we test, the more cases we'll find. So what matters isn't the number of new cases we find, but the number of new cases we find as a fraction of the number of new tests we conduct. Without the context of the number of tests conducted, there is no way to know whether we're finding more cases because more people are getting infected or we're finding more cases because we're doing more testing. In fact, in May and June, although the number of new COVID cases steadily rose, the percentage of tests coming back positive declined, indicating that the uh, rising case numbers were due less to increased cases than to increased testing. And while the media says correctly that the number of daily cases in November is setting records, they do not report that this is largely due to increased testing. The fraction of tests that are coming back positive while rising is on a par with what the U.S. experienced in mid-May. Now, Anthony Davies and uh, James R. Harrigan say we can blame this persistent lack of context on a perfect storm of politicians seeking to be doing something, media seeking to sell advertising, and people paying enough attention to be scared, but not enough to understand. In fact, they say from the beginning, politicians were caught between a rock and a hard place. Locking people and businesses down meant possibly saving lives from COVID, but it also meant losing lives and livelihoods to unemployment, poverty, depression, suicide, and domestic violence. Politicians had to choose wisely. Influencing their decisions was the fact that the ramifications of choosing incorrectly weren't evenly weighted. You can see why I found this and thought, "Man, this is a treasure of information." We're going to come back to this commentary again. This is from Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan, a piece published on the American Institute for uh, in Economic Research over the weekend. Blinded by a blizzard of data, I get it, man. There are a lot of com- there are a lot of competing numbers out there. Who am I supposed to believe? But as these guys recommend, get some context, and it becomes a lot easier. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Just a quick reminder, you can find all of the articles, all of the uh, authors that I reference in today's show notes, which would be for November 30th. You can find them at thebryanhideshow.com. Great place to spend some time reading if uh, you want to become a little bit better informed on various events. You don't have to agree with everything that you read. I just try to pick the best sources that I can find. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to break my arm, pat myself on the back here, but I like the 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 availability of Really good, solid information. And I spend a fair amount of time every day trying to find what I consider um, good, credible info that will add to your understanding of the world without unnecessarily weighing you down with political baggage or, you know, emotional baggage that, uh, that has you cowering in fear. You should be able to see the world more clearly, but also understand, you know, where you stand and what you can do. I'm sharing a piece right now from Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan. They are the hosts of the Words Words and Numbers podcast. And they have got a great piece here on being blinded by a blizzard of data as it pertains to COVID. Now, they point out here, if the disease were virulent and politicians failed to lock down the American people, it would be clear politicians had erred and people would hold them accountable for all the deaths that would ensue. This is the, the dilemma that politicians faced when it came to how do we deal with COVID. On the other hand, if the disease were mild and politicians unnecessarily locked down the country, it would not be at all clear that the politicians had erred because they could always say, well, the disease would have been devastating had we not locked down everyone and everything. That relatively few people died, well, that's just a sign politicians had done the right thing. Now, here the authors say, whether right or wrong, the better option for the politicians was to lock down. But the people would not tolerate a lockdown if they believed that the virus was a mild threat. You understand the distinction they're making here. The politicians know it's a lot easier for them to claim, well, you know, we did what we thought was necessary. And, you know, it turned out better because we were dealing with an unknown. Now, there's a larger question here about uh, was that uh, legitimate power for them to exercise? And I suspect that at some point that's going to be litigated. It may be Nuremberg-style trials that, uh, that end up litigating that. But the bottom line is, you know, we would not tolerate lockdowns if we believed the virus was a mild threat. And so the authors here say for the politicians to be able to execute what for them was the safer strategy, the people had to believe that if not for those lockdowns, millions of Americans would die. One way to convince the people of this is to present them with data taken out of context. Meanwhile, the media, ever on the lookout for ways to attract more eyeballs, had a stronger incentive to present the data in the worst possible light than to present context that made the data appear less scary. Now they point out, while this may all sound like an elaborate conspiracy, it's not. No one conspired to achieve this outcome. Politicians, people, and the media simply responded to the incentives in front of them. And the outcome we got was entirely predictable. And what happens next is entirely predictable as well. Infections, we are told, are on the rise again. And so they say, expect to see the politicians saying exactly the sort of things they said in March and April. And expect the media to play the role of enabler once again. The only difference will be the response they get from the American people, which is the one group that seems to have a collective memory that reaches all the way back to March. They suffered the lies and the damned lies they were served. The same buggled use of statistics will not work on them again. Now, they conclude by saying, look, there's no question that COVID is a serious disease and that every life lost is cause for concern. But each of us faces very real risks every day from all manner of things. And what's important is that we address each risk with commensurate care that the media has consistently reported on COVID without appropriate context, suggests that historians will look back on 2020 less for its outbreak of COVID than for its outbreak of hysteria. And I think you and I probably have a, a pretty good chance of not being a part of that hysteria. But it's not something that you can do passively. You can't just you know sit back and ah, I'm going to go with the flow and see where it carries me. Because right now, it's a, it's a raging torrent of hysteria. One of the saddest symptoms of that hysteria, I think, comes down to the uh, all too common confrontations over masks or not masks in public, and man, it is everywhere. What do we do? Alan Stevo, I think, has had some really valuable information, and I'm going to share a piece with you from him. and And some people are some people are going to take this wrong. They're going to take this as oh how arrogant, because the title is face masks. If you announce your VIP status to the world, the world will accommodate your VIP status. Now, that is not someone arrogantly going around, I am the king and I will impose on you, you know, lesser people, whatever I decree. Listen to the case that he makes out here. And it seems to me this is a pretty solid way of approaching complications with uh, not wanting to be masked up in a store. He says, recently at a hardware store that I called ahead of time asking for recognition of a face mask exemption, the manager notified all employees that a customer would be coming in unmasked. And Alan Stevo says, and I did so, true to my word. When an employee then got after me about the face mask, he was quickly reprimanded by the same manager and not once but twice sought me out and offered sincere and lengthy apologies for giving me a hard time. Now, Alan Stevo says, as part of my political consulting work, I have advanced presidential candidates, senators and congressmen. In other words, he goes ahead of them and makes sure all appropriate accommodations are in place and that they receive frictionless white glove treatment in all of the usual spots where regular people encounter friction. And he says, it's always amazed me how willing people are to make accommodation when simply asked. Just asking goes a really long way. So he says, my suggestion to you is do what a VIP would do and just let others know what you want. You don't need to be a VIP in order to tell others what you want. You just need to be someone dedicated to communicating honestly with another person. Now, he uses the example of you could also do what handicapped people have long done. And that is state what you want to a person in a position to provide you with what you want. That responsibility has been drilled into the minds of handicapped people. If they do not ask for accommodation, there's no possible way that a person who doesn't live their life would even know what kind of accommodation they need. To pretend that another person can can read your mind is utter nonsense and handicapped people for time immemorial have had this burden of honest communication to bear. Now it's enshrined into law as well that it is appropriate to make certain accommodations for the handicapped. <clears throat> it is debatable, he says, how much federal laws, such as the Americans with Disabilities Act, serve the interest of individuals with disabilities. But something it is likely to achieve is to force the topic of individual accommodations into the training of virtually every customer facing employee in the United States at a company of any certain size. Now, whether or not that's a good thing. He says the existence of such laws are part of the reality of the situation in which we find ourselves. Just like you don't have to be a VIP in order to tell others what you want, you also don't have to be handicapped in order to tell others what you want. Quite to the contrary, anyone can communicate the level of directness and honesty that VIPs and the handicapped have both been expected to demonstrate if they want to have their needs met. That's what honest people have long done. By that he means, people committed to being honest to themselves and honest to others as well. Simply telling others what they want. You could say this is kind of a, a uh, this is kind of a twist on the biblical thing of ask and it shall be given you, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Alan Stevo says sometimes all you have to do is knock on a door, to be let through that door. And at the heart of this method is honesty. He says it is. Honestly identifying your own boundaries, honestly communicating your own boundaries, and honestly defending your own boundaries. Now, this isn't passive aggression. This is simply being honest. Passive aggressive, he says, is a word thrown around in popular culture to where it doesn't have a lot of meaning. He just says people in customer service roles want to give you what you want. You just need to ask for it clearly, ask for it properly, and ask for it nicely.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right,
1: welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed that piece I shared with you from Alan Stevo in the last segment. He has been uh, just a fountain of information and, I think, good advice on how to deal with uh, the mask or not to mask conundrum that uh, people face whenever they go out shopping in public or just go out in public where masks are required. And, yeah, you're going to encounter some people who are going to push back. But uh, he, I think, has a very reasoned approach, much better than the whole brute force, we're going to just come in here and complain until somebody does what we say. By the way, you can find an entire archive of his writings at lewrockwell.com, that's L E W Rockwell.com, a website which is high on the list of my resources for wrong thinkers just because there is a ton of great information published there every day from a very wide variety of contributors. So let's talk for a moment about becoming a better thinker, a more clear and independent thinker, probably the most important responsibility you and I bear during times of crisis. And I think we would mostly agree that, yeah, we're, we're in the midst of a time of crisis right now on a, on a number of different fronts. I've really been enjoying Paul Rosenberg's um, essay series on different fallacies, recognizing when they're being used against you, how to counter them so that you can uh, argue your point of view or perhaps even just defend your point of view more effectively. He has uh, been doing this uh, for the last few weeks. I just got the uh, recent one for fallacy number six, ad hominem. And this is one you are very likely to encounter, so I want to share some of Paul Rosenberg's thoughts on this. He says the ad hominem fallacy is a tool for winning an argument based not upon the facts, but by attacking the person arguing against you. In other words, personal attacks are used to distract everyone from the actual facts. If done successfully, the opponents and observers will focus only on the failings, real or imagined, of the person being attacked and uncritically accept the conclusion of the person launching the attack. And yes, he says, this fallacy works frequently. In fact, he says, as I write this, it works amazingly well when when applied politically. You can shoot down any number of legitimate arguments just by condemning its advocate as a member of the opposing political party. Well, he's a Republican, will negate anything said by such a person to half the American population. He's a Democrat, will negate it for a significant portion of the other half. And of course, there are many other applications, such as rejecting an argument because someone has behaved badly in the past. Now Rosenberg says the reality of this world, however, is that nearly all of us have behaved badly, be, behaved badly, rather, at least a time or two. Now that's unfortunate, but having done a few bad things doesn't mean that we're in the wrong in everything we say. Humans are hugely variable and doubly over time. They're also clever creatures who will stumble across truths frequently and even by accident. He says one lesson I picked up as a teenager was that we can learn something from almost anyone. And not long after absorbing that concept, he says, it was proved to me in real life. And if you'll please excuse the indelicate details, when I learned a valuable lesson from a degenerate alcoholic, a man so desperately and continually drunk that he stank of his own urine. A true statement remains true, whether spoken by a saint or a murderer. And of course, if spoken by those who've committed lesser crimes, like being a member of the wrong political faction. So how does the trick work? Well, he says it works generally in two stages. Number one, like many other fallacies, this one seeks to overwhelm our brains with emotional inputs so that clear analysis is put out. Number two, it insists upon a conclusion that will require pain to reject. Now that first point, he says, is the one that we've all experienced, though I don't know of research that precisely quantifies it. We've all felt befuddled and overwhelmed by emotional pressures being thrown at us. People learn very well how to use such weapons, and they do use them for the purpose of winning arguments. Our brains are truly amazing things. But he says they're also vulnerable to emotional overload, and such an overload causes us to pull back and observe at the expense of performing analysis. So under sharp pressure, we tend to stop critiquing and to seek safety. Once we've pulled back in this way, he says a second pullback is easy enough to initiate, and it nearly always comes in the form of fear, and generally implied fear. So consider the political party example. Well, if you don't agree that the heretical member of the XYZ party is bad and wrong, you must be a bad-wrong heretic yourself. And so again, we see a two-wave attack in the common use of this fallacy. The other side is wrong because he or she is the enemy. Then, if you persist in considering his lies, you will also be an enemy of the tribe, fit to be cast out, and despised. Now, you can even see this in the intellectual's version of this fallacy. What you are, speak so loudly that I can't hear what you're saying. Again, it starts with a personal condemnation of the opponent, clearly implying that what they are is stinkingly nasty. And then, since there is intellectualism mixed in, if you persist in considering him, you are clearly stupid and will moreover be lambasted as stupid by every smart person. Now, there could be other ways to run this fallacy, but that seems to be the standard model. So here's what to keep in mind. He says there are two things to keep in mind when you encounter this attack. The first is standard advice on fallacies driven by emotion. Buy yourself some time and regroup your thoughts. In this case, he says, I would recommend saying something like this. Wait, I want to understand. I think you're saying two things. One, that he's a wicked XYZ, and two, that he's wrong about ABC. Is that correct? Now, bear in mind, please, that by doing this, you'll be showing a kindness both to yourself and to anyone who is observing the argument. Because they'll almost certainly need time to reset as well. And he says, and as before, you'll be resetting the emotional dynamic of the interaction. Emotional attacks may be potent, but they seldom have a great deal of staying power, unless we accept them as valid, of course. Once you've reset the argument, then you can take the issues one at a time. My opinion is that uh, you should generally begin with the character assassination part, clearing the field for a rational discussion of the real issue. You might begin with something like, so are all XYZs wrong about everything? And if the other side persists, you can go on to a more flamboyant statement, hopefully pushing back on continuing emotional pressure with an emotionally visible statement like this one. Well, let's say that I'm a well-known liar and hypocrite who is presently high on crack. Does that change the words I say? Are they not wrong or right based on their independent content? Now, if that doesn't do it, you're probably dealing with someone so devoted to winning that they'll oppose you endlessly. And in that extreme, you need to not care. Not caring about an opponent telling his or her friends what a rotten person you are is actually a crucial ability. If you aren't emotionally prepared to let people say bad things about you, you'll remain stuck where you are unable to escape, so long as those people or others like them exist. That is, you'll be frozen in place for life. And so your ability to deal well with this fallacy and attack ultimately rests on your ability to let them speak badly of you. You'll never be able to get everyone to like you, and doubly so if you want to find the truth. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, Look, it's not fun to have people talk badly about you, especially if it's unfairly. He says, I've lost friends that way. But in the present world that's the price of developing as an honest and thinking human being. So let them lie about you, suffer for it if you must, but hold to what you believe to be true, your future and the future of the world depend upon such things. That is such solid advice. I just I got to take a moment here and just express my gratitude for uh, for Paul Rosenberg and and what he contributes to those who are sincerely seeking truth and, and just trying to become better informed, better communicators, better at arguing their point of view or defending their point of view without becoming intellectual bullies. I think he has a very reasonable approach. And I love that uh, that last part about, yeah, it's not fun to have people talk badly about you, but you will never be free and I mean truly liberated until you come to a point in life where you're okay with people saying bad things, untrue things about you. He has an essay. I'll have to see if I can find it. If I can find it, I'll put it into the show notes. And it's a call me pisher. That's a very derogatory term for someone who, uh, you know, as an adult, doesn't have the ability to to control their bladder. In other words, somebody who wets their pants as an adult. But it's, it's I believe, a Yiddish saying, And the the context behind that saying is, you can call me whatever you want. It's not going to change the way that I believe. So, yeah, call me a pisher. Call me whatever names you feel like you need to call me. I know where I stand. I know who I am. Now, is it sad that we live in a world where a person who has conviction at that level is almost always seen or portrayed as selfish. How dare you do that? Why, don't, why can't you yield You know, to, to what the herd is, is thinking or saying? Well, I don't know, man. I, as, as I look at history, it seems to me that the people who have most moved the needle in the direction of justice and goodness have been the people who were willing to suffer being misunderstood misrepresented, maligned, called names, and in some cases, burned at the stake. The ones who went along with the crowd, well, at some level, turned out to be enablers of some of the worst things humanity has done. So choose wisely.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once
1: again, welcome back to the show. Got a couple of gems that I'd like to share with you here in the uh, final segment this hour. One of the one of my favorite emails that I love to see land in my inbox is uh, the daily email from everythingvoluntary.com. It has a terrific uh, array of different contributors, and, and they're all very—I uh, don't know how to put this. I, I don't want to make them sound radical, but I guess in, in today's partisan world, this is kind of a radical thing. I don't know where most of these people come from as far as, you know, well what what party do they vote with. That's really not important. What's important to me is they are so good at expressing truth. And they're they're not uh, mainstream enablers. They're not worried about uh, is this politically correct? Is this woke enough to share with the audience? They're just concerned about uh, hey, does this leave your freedom intact and my freedom intact? And it's a very refreshing way to see things done. Brian Kaplan has a great article about the anti-jerk law. And I thought this was a really good illustration about uh, Anti-discrimination laws. Here's what he says. He says, you've probably had a boss who was a jerk. Indeed, you may be working under a jerk of a boss right now. Question, would it be a good idea to pass an anti-jerk law to protect workers from these jerky employers? Like existing employment discrimination laws, the anti-jerk law would allow aggrieved employees to sue their employer for jerkiness and receive handsome compensation if they prove their charge in a court of law. He says, I doubt many people would endorse this anti-jerk law. But he says, on what basis, though, would they object? Now think about this. Libertarians might stand up for the right to be a jerk, but few non-libertarians would find that convincing. Economists might appeal to the standard economics textbook conclusion that mandated benefits, including the right to sue your employer for jerkiness, are inefficient. But then again, few non-economists would find that convincing. So why then would normal people refuse to endorse an anti-jerk law? O'Brien well, Brian Kaplan says if pressed, the reason would probably be along the lines of, well, jerkiness is way too subjective. If you call your boss a jerk, he's probably thinking, no, you're the jerk. Even if a large majority of the workers at a firm consider their boss a jerk, a contrarian might ins- insist the boss is tough but fair. You folks simply don't measure up. Other people might muse personality conflicts are a fact of life. You can't legislate them out of existence. But he says, what happens if you scoff at the subjectivity of jerkiness and pass your anti-jerk law anyway? Here's what happens. Number one, bosses try to avoid the appearance of jerkiness. And bosses with poor social skills or bad luck still get sued. Number two, since bosses try to avoid the appearance of jerkiness, litigious employees don't have a lot to work with. Number three, as long as judges and juries are sympathetic, however, they lower the de facto burden of proof, allowing the war on jerks to continue indefinitely. Number four, bosses in turn defend themselves by trying to preemptively discredit litigious employees. Number five, cynical bosses go a step further by trying not to hire employees who are relatively likely to cry jerk. And number six, Human Resource Departments Institute Orwellian Anti-Jerk Training, where participants get punished for pointing out that the HR folks are domineering and insulting. In other words, HR reps exemplify the very thing they claim to oppose. And number seven, if so-called jerky managerial styles enhance productivity, think athletic coaches, society forfeits major benefits. Now, Brian Kaplan says, as far as I know, no country has an anti-jerk law in place. But... Many countries ban discrimination, and the effects are the same. He says, because once you pass discrimination laws, number one, bosses try to avoid the appearance of discrimination, but bosses with poor social skills or bad luck still get sued. Number two, since bosses try to avoid the appearance of discrimination, litigious employees don't have a lot to work with. Number three, as long as judges and juries are sympathetic, however, they lower the de facto burden of proof, allowing the war on discrimination to continue indefinitely. Number four, bosses in turn defend themselves by trying to preemptively discredit litigious employees. Number five, cynical bosses go a step further by trying not to hire employees who are relatively likely to cry discrimination. Number six, Human Resource Departments Institute Orwellian Anti-Discrimination Training, where participants get punished for pointing out that the HR folks are hostile and bigoted. In other words, HR reps exemplify the very thing they claim to oppose. And number seven, if so-called discrimination enhances productivity, think standardized testing, society forfeits major benefits. Now, Brian Kaplan asks, why do the same patterns emerge in both cases? He says it's because he discriminated against me as about as subjective as he was a jerk to me. In both cases, they feel very real to the accuser. In both cases, they feel very unfair to the accused. But he says if you knew neither party, you'd probably decline to even express an opinion. And with good reason. I thought that was brilliant. Right on the money. All right, one final note here. This is from Art Carden from the American Institute for Economic Research. And he's talking about how the value is in ideas. I thought this was a terrific illustration. He says, recently he and his wife spent a good chunk of the day assembling IKEA furniture. And he says, I'm happy to report we did it without involving medical professionals or law enforcement. I count that as a pretty big win considering my technical proclivities. As we worked, though, he said, my every neuron screamed, this is not your comparative advantage or even your absolute advantage. And he says, I had to hush my inner voice because assembling IKEA furniture was an opportunity to reflect once again on just what makes our world incredible. What makes IKEA furniture valuable? Is it the labor that went into its manufacture? The capital goods and tools the workers were using, the wooden screws that make up my new desk? Or the metal and petroleum derivatives that make up my new chair? No. He says the ideas they embody, not just the materials they contain, are where the value lies. The idea of fitting wood and metal together just so makes my new desk suitable for my purposes. He says my, desk's, my desk lamps designer, for example, was named right on the box. Tilling the ground, swinging a hammer, operating a table saw, or even steering a container ship certainly contributed. However, the lamp gets most of its value from its design. And then he says there are the IKEA instructions. Now he says, I've written before that my favorite tool is my wallet because I'm not very good at anything that involves swinging a hammer. Like Lego instructions, IKEA instructions are written with a series of images and arrows making it so that anyone in any culture can understand them. The ability to give directions that are so clear as to be practically impossible to misunderstand is another unappreciated talent. He says, I'm sure that with a little reflection, we can all think of a lot of examples in which we've lost time, money, or something else because we communicated poorly. In academia, one can build an entire career writing papers about what an eminent scholar really meant. How much trouble and confusion and how many books and scholarly articles could have been avoided had the writers just been a bit more clear? Or had the readers been just a bit more read, just a bit more charitably and carefully? He says, attractive IKEA furniture is designed in Sweden by part of a Dutch conglomerate and manufactured in China. It comes to the United States in sleek packaging containing easy-to-follow instructions. The process represents the very essence of how the West grew rich. He says, we came up with new ideas for the wave of gadgets that swept across England and its overseas extensions. It wasn't because of anything in the soil, which had been there for eons, nor was it because of sheer brute strength. It happened because we unleashed our creativity. Now, of course, assembling IKEA furniture as such probably won't give you a profound sense of meaning, just like switching breakfast cereals or drinking more beer won't cure your existential dread. That's the realm of theology and philosophy. IKEA desks, chairs, and lamps are, however, nice to have. But he says their value, again, is not in the brute force or the raw materials required for their manufacture, but in the ideas they embody. He says cooking shows and the creme fraiche episode of South Park show you creative chefs twist on pizza, potato salad, and pots of chili. But Art Carden says when you go into Ikea or you visit their website, you get to see their designers' twists on bookshelves, office chairs, and task lamps. Which desk and lamp recipes win? Well, it's not the ones that require the most labor or the most savings. In the long run, it might not even be the ones that capture the imaginations of dev- design aficionados. He says the winning recipes are the ones that get enough votes in the form of the dollars people spend. I know you didn't uh, tune in today to get an economics lesson, but that is a brilliant applied lesson right there. There's economics. There's economics right there in front of your face so that you can see it and understand it. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. I strongly recommend you check it out for yourself. And if you haven't signed up for the daily email from the American Institute for Economic Research, maybe you should consider signing up for that as well. It's a treasure trove of information. In fact, they have become one of my most valued sources on all things relating to COVID and helping to make sense of that. Thanks again for joining us. We got another great hour of terrific programming out there for you at the This
0: is the Brian Hyde Show.